You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Hello, I am Dr. Virgil Henry Store. It's February 26th, and I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Emily Chamley Wright, who is the provost and dean of the college at Washington College in Eastern Shore, Maryland. And we started off talking about your time at George Mason University and your graduate training at, at George Mason. But after George Mason, you ended up building your career essentially at liberal arts colleges. You talked about Beloit College as being important in your um Field work in Zimbabwe, for instance, and being a, an op, you know, giving you the opportunity to be over there with um, undergraduates as a part of their, um, uh, you know, programs. And then you, I introduced you at the beginning as being the, the provost and dean of the college of Washington College, and another liberal arts college. And so the question is, what's special about liberal arts colleges? That's a great question. Um, it's it's a little bit like asking, what's special about your mother? You know, <laughs> um, there's a lot that's special about my mother, and it's hard to know where to begin. Um, uh, but what drew me um, was a, a sense that teaching mattered, uh, and that and that and mattered most. And I knew that my comparative advantage was 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 in teaching, uh, and so it just seemed like a rational choice to make initially. Um, but as my as my time went on there, what I really appreciated about uh, the particular, particularly the the culture at Beloit College, is that it was a place that drew you know fiery, um, thoughtful young people who um, mostly uh, really approached the world from a kind of progressive leftist perspective. And and it was so exciting to be able to introduce the economic way of thinking to people who genuinely cared about the world and, and the state of the world. And it didn't matter to me that um, when they when when I encountered them initially, um, they had never e- either thought much about economics or if they had, their assumptions were that, you know, bad stuff happens in the market and that's and, and, and capitalism is bad. I loved working with students um, uh, uh, who entered into the conversation from that perspective because what it allowed me to do was to was to really hone my skills as a teacher because what I had to do was to um, really work hard to make sure that I understood, that that they were they were operating from a particular paradigm, that that um, we could be looking at the same data and they would see one story or one narrative emerge and I would be seeing another, and it forced me to be very careful in the way that I um, approached the topics, that I didn't take anything for granted, uh, that I was respectful for um, the thought process that had led them to the point where they were. And, and it, and it taught me that, uh, that, that in that process, um, that what was important was not that they walked away persuaded, uh, to have, to hold the same policy, um, uh, conclusions that I held, uh, that that was, that was actually not at all satisfying. I think I had kind of tried that on a little bit in my, um, when I was teaching as a graduate student and it was very, very unsatisfying, uh, because, uh, 
you know, you get a devotee who immediately is um, gloms on to your conclusions, and you realize you can't talk to them, right? It's like because they don't ever push back. It's like talking to Jello, right? It's it's just it it. It, it, it isn't exciting because there isn't any pushback. Uh, they're, they're not thinking deeper uh, about uh, the challenges that you're putting in front of them. And so I loved working with students who uh, had, an, had an initial, um, you know, kind of pushback response uh, to the economic way of thinking. And it, it, it made me a better economist. It made me a better teacher. And, and in the course of that, um, I really started to... Uh, fall in love with liberal education. Um, I, I came into it with a love of the economic way of thinking and really with the zeal to bring that economic way of thinking to these people who thought about the world carefully and deliberately. Um, and that's still there. But I but I ended up in a place that recognized that, you know, how wonderful that I get to teach next to colleagues who are doing exactly the same thing, but it's really trying to um, – but they're they're doing it from the humanities perspective. That they're they're teaching Shakespeare with the same sense of, you know, I can really help emancipate this mind if 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 uh, they take seriously this Shakespearean text, um, and 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 across the board across the sciences and social sciences and arts, um, being able to work with people who come at it with the same sense of commitment. From their and love of their own discipline, but openness to the intellectual enterprise uh, was really exciting, and and that's and that's always stuck with me as being what's special about a liberal arts environment. But you continued while you were there, um, so it's not uncommon for teachers in liberal arts colleges to also continue to do research. But you ended up doing a lot of research, right? You wrote three books, that you know, dozens of articles and what have you. So why? continue to research at that pace, I guess, or to that extent? I think it's uh, because I've always been interested in uh, what drives me is to be a part of good conversations. It's, um, and, and I want to be clear that it, early on in your career, it's hard to know what motivates you, right? I mean, because you've got you got to get your dissertation done, and then you've got to get a job, and then you've got to get tenure, and uh, and then maybe at some point you're also thinking about promotion to full. Um, somewhere along the way, um, you should figure out you're going to figure out how much of this is push and how much of this is pull. How much of it is that you're doing this because of the external constraints versus this is what you're really drawn to. And it was a, a, a truly liber liberating moment uh, when uh, I did reach full professor. I was awarded full professor at Beloit. And, and I said, oh, that's great. I'm really honored and that's wonderful, but I got to go to work on something, right? And that there was a next opportunity, the next uh, thing that we wanted to get going and I wanted to write. And it and I did stop in the middle of working on that first paper beyond promotion. And I said, this is so cool. I mean, there is no external pressure on me, none whatsoever, absolutely none. And I'm more driven than ever. And I and I think that um, it, it's good for young scholars to know that, that, uh, that, it can be easy to to forget that there is an internal drive uh, to do this work, and and that's 
a, uh, a and and what I love about doing work this kind of work at a liberal arts college is that. Uh, because you don't have the pressure to do as much in terms of quantity, it really can be the quality work that you want to do. I, you know, I got to a point where it, I, I did, I stopped worrying about how much I was doing, and instead was only asking the question: Is this the most important work I can be doing? Is this the kind of work that's the most interesting to me? And I felt really blessed to be at a liberal arts college because I knew that's all I had to do, uh, and and. The quantity I knew was fine. It was it was really uh, uh, working on the the quality of the work that uh, that was really a, a, a true blessing. And and going back to the, the the sort of underlying thing is is I like to be part of of conversations, and I'm more about the next conversation than than the last one. Um, uh, I don't do well at self promotion. I don't promote my books well at all. Um, it's it's probably a, a real failing of mine, um, in part because by the time the book comes out, I really want to be thinking about and doing and talking about the next thing that I'm interested in. Um, but being a part of conversations has always been my the basis of, of my deep friendships, like my deep friendship with you. Um, it's, it's part of what makes for a happy marriage that I've been in for 20 years is that we have really good conversations. It's how we're raising our kids is, you know, what I really want out of my kids is good conversation partners. Um, and, and scholarship is another kind of conversation. It's, uh, and it's, and it's an exciting kind of conversation because it's, it, it's different than the, the, um, uh, ephemeral, um, in the moment conversation that you have with the spoken word, with the written word, you do have the opportunity to get it exactly right. You do have the challenge of fitting within a particular structure and constraint. Um, and, and I like that challenge. And I wouldn't want all my conversations to be that way. Uh, but I do love that dimension of conversation uh, to be engaged in the broader conversation in the discipline. And so in recent years, you've actually transitioned, though, from the classroom. You've done more administration. Before you left Beloit, you were doing administration to a certain extent, and, and, and now you're a provost. So why administration? I think that it goes back to the it, – it's in part the question of, of, you know, what's special about liberal arts colleges is, is part of the answer. But, I, but something we haven't talked about, uh, which I think is another kind of thread that matters uh, for any – uh, graduate of, of George Mason and in the economics program is uh, that that there is a respect and and love of freedom and there and there's a way in which the the economic way of thinking is tied to freedom but it's tied to freedom in two ways one, one is that you know there's the sense that if people understood economics better, they would understand why a free society is a good society. Um, they would understand the links between, at least for me, what was exciting about the connections between freedom and, and the economic way of thinking initially when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student is that, is that you know, freedom is the, is, the, um, uh, is the pathway to prosperity. Freedom is the pathway to um, uh, flourishing lives for all people, not just a segment of society, but for all, all you know, all members of society. That that freedom, in its fullest sense, would um, is is uh, is is the is the essential ingredient to the good society. 
And so if, if people understood the economic way of thinking as being part of the package of what it means to be in a free society, that would be a good thing. So, so there's that connection for sure. Um, but there's, there's another connection too, and, and that's that um, the economic way of thinking is, is powerfully emancipating intellectually, that once you have it goes back to what, what drew you to economics in the first place, is that, is that it is a, a, a thing that frees the mind. Uh, and, and it was um, that respect for economics that pretty quickly um, I, I matured out of the, the phase where I wanted students to kind of, you know, uh, you know get with the same uh, kind of free market approach that I, I was all about. Um, I, I, I pretty quickly moved past that, fe- not feeling that that was satisfying, uh, because what was much more satisfying was if you could help a student make a move that was intellectually emancipating, it didn't matter whether or not they came away with the same policy conclusion as you. And if, the, if you got them to stop and pause and scratch their heads and go, huh, I'm going to have to think about that. Um, and you, and it was even, you know, I would do that with students who disagreed with me at the outset, but I also needed to do that with students who agreed with me at the outset. And then I, I found that to even be a, a, a more, uh, pressing, um, obligation on me to, to be able to do that is to get them to the point where they didn't allow their ideological commitments to substitute for critical thinking, didn't allow their abilities at critical thinking to substitute for listening really carefully to the analysis of someone that they disagreed with, that, they, that a sympathetic listener is someone who says, you know, I don't agree with this person, but I know that that person's smart, so I'm going to work really hard to try and understand why it is that they believe what they believe and, and really try to understand what is making their logic work. And, 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 then, I'll, and, that, and then I want to pause and I want to think about it, right? If I can make that move, that's what's powerful about economics. And, and so what I learned over my time at Beloit is that, is that liberal arts colleges were special because that was happening all across campus. Um, not just in the economics department, and um, and as I as I looked out in uh, you know liberal arts colleges are getting beat up left and right um, from all corners, um, uh, you know literally left, political left, political right, um, uh, from uh, political leaders, from uh, higher education specialists. I mean it's it, it uh, very tough uh, climate for liberal arts colleges, and and I saw that there were some. Uh, within uh, academic leadership that were very, very effective at making the case and of being effective champions of liberal education. And, and I saw and I, you know, had seen those who were not very successful and who had gone into administration for all the wrong reasons. And, uh, and, I, and I thought, so my love of economics started to transition to being a love of economics and really a love of, love of liberal education and a champion for economics kind of um, morphing into being a champion and, a, and an advocate for liberal education. And, uh, I, and there are, in my current role, on a day-to-day basis, there's headaches that I wish I didn't have. There's things that I've got to think about and, and contend with that I was never trained for. Um, but Ultimately, it's the care and nurturing 
and 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 championing of a liberal education that I'm really proud of, and I'm and I'm really I really feel um, deeply fortunate to be in a position to be able to do that. I had a question about actually uh, identity. So you've been a bunch of these things, right? You've been a researcher, a very active one. You've been a teacher, or a very good teacher. You've, you're now an administrator. Uh, the, how do you see yourself? Is it some mix of the three? Is that an unfair question? Is that not even no. an important sort of question to no, ask? No, it's, it's, it's a huge thing uh, to ask in terms of, of anybody who's thinking about a transition into academic leadership has, should, should know that that's going to be a thing. Uh, the first time you don't get invited to a faculty gathering because you're not considered faculty um, is, I, I'll tell you, it's devastating. It's just absolutely devastating. Um, and even though I'm formally a member of the faculty uh, and a member of, and a full professor in the economics department, um, and even if I were to, to, to teach, which I find um, not enough time to do, um, it, it still wouldn't be the same, that once once you are... Um, in an administrative role, your identity must change. Um, but I believe it's up to me as to whether or not um, I f- give up th- the core of what makes me a teacher scholar. And I and I I know a lot of my peers at institutions who say, you know, you really just have to you know completely disassociate yourself. Um, you know, you, you should only have friends with other administrators. You shouldn't have friends on the faculty, you know, that kind of level. And, and, and I've consciously decided to not do that. And, and there will be faculty, for example, who don't consider me part of, of the body of the faculty. And, that, and, that's, and that's okay. And that's, that's their choice. And I understand that. But what's core to me in terms of my own self-identity is I'm still a teacher scholar. And uh, my teaching looks very different uh, than it once did, um, and I and I and I hope that this is received in in the spirit in which I I mean it is that uh, when I'm working with faculty one on one, I'm completely in my teacher headspace, uh, and and that doesn't mean that I think of faculty as students. They're not, uh, but in terms of the same. Uh, spark of imagination, the same uh, love of the intellectual enterprise. Uh, I always wanted to treat my students as colleagues, right? And and so it's really in 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 that spirit that my colleagues are part of the enterprise of teaching for me. And in terms of the scholarship, I wish I had more time uh, to do more of the scholarship. And I'm I'm hoping that if you know, if I if I do good work, maybe I'll carve out um, uh, the the scope I need to do more. But it's it's critical to me that I am able to continue to contribute um, uh, to the scholarly work that um, has been important to my career so far because it's the thing that keeps me honest. It's the it's the thing that keeps me engaged with the intellectual enterprise. Um, I think it's. I think it's a thing that externally can buy me some credibility, but that wouldn't be enough on its own. It's really that um, if I'm not allowing myself the opportunity to be continue to be a part of the scholarly conversations, 
um, that's a kind of violence I'm, I'd be doing to myself that um, I don't think is sustainable. So it, it is really a critical piece of what makes the work of academic leadership sustainable is I have to be able from time to time to re-engage with the scholarly conversation. So survival, I think, is the answer to the question as to why. Thank you. So that's the, the end of my formal questions. But while I still have you here and, and we're still recording, three unfair questions. Yes. That you knew of young Peter Betke. Mm-hmm. What was Pete like when he was a graduate student? I guess you were still an undergraduate. And I was an close. undergraduate in those days. And, I w- and he was among those who I'm sure I pestered a great deal. What I found remarkable is he was a, he was a very young father at that time. And I was paying careful attention to how much of a machine he was uh, for the work and simultaneously how committed he was to being a father. Um, and and this, they were young at the time. And, I, and, and that, was, that was a big part of the, the impression I got is that how did he do it? How did he do do it all? Because I'd be tired, kind of at at you know the end of the the day that I thought I was you know fatigued from you know doing scholarly work, doing you know, doing the work of a student, and here this guy was. He was teaching. He was uh, uh, pushing forward on publications in his dissertation, and he was uh, uh, a young dad. I and I didn't quite know how he made it all work. And that was, that was, um, I'm not sure if awe-inspiring is the word. It was, just, it was just kind of like, huh, how, do, how does that happen? How does a person do that? So it was, really, it was really a sense of wonder about how it all, how we made it all work. I think that I, I still have not figured that out. And so if you have any insight, I would, I would love to know. The second unfair question, you knew an even younger Virgil store. What was the younger Virgil store like? The younger Virgil <laughs> store. I remember um, the moment I met the younger Virgil store. Um, he was um, uh, incredibly clean cut, uh, clean shaven. Um, you, were, you wore a, uh, a dark brown long sleeved uh, shirt. I remember, I remember the moment. Right, um, that I that I met you, and you came up and 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 talked to me because I think it was just a, a, a straight up econ, you know, intro econ course, right? And and this was probably you know like the first couple of days on the job, and the question you asked me um, was catapulted me. I, I don't remember the question, but I remember just the way the manner in which you were talking to me. I thought oh my goodness, I hope this is not the modal student because I'm going to be so outclassed so quickly <laughs> that I had this image of what the typical freshman would be uh, it, at, 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 in my introductory course. And I felt like I could pretty much hold my own. I was not sure that I could with this particular um, person in my class. Now, I later learned that he had a little bit of an advantage, that he had uh, 
been in higher education before. He had had a couple of years under his belt that uh, the typical freshman had not had. So, um, you know, that was a little bit of an exhale at that, at that point. Um, uh, but, but that was the first moment. But then very quickly, he uh, um, uh, became one of my, uh, he was my first favorite student. And uh, he uh, became a member of the comparative economic systems class uh, that I taught, and I and you know I I made no bones about it. I tried every way I could to emulate uh, Don Lavoy, and uh, and I think of that course as our first course in which uh, you and I shared a relationship with Don, because even though he wasn't in the room, he was in the room. Uh, and because he was my teacher of comparative systems, and uh, and I had this uh, guy in my class, Virgil, uh, who was uh, a complete and utter Marxist, and and he was he was really really getting into the first three or four weeks of the course. It's all about Marx, and remember, I I was I was a Don devotee, so I made sure that it was really uh, Marx centric, and we really focused on 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 the Marx and. Uh, and the student, other students would kind of quit back at me and 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 offer their, uh, you know, uh, flaccid uh, arguments against Mark and I would come, Marx and I would come back and and defend Marx and 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 Virgil liked me at that moment, and and then I flipped it and I started doing the Misesian critique and and he didn't like me anymore for a while, um, so we had to like you know work through that, but I think we have by this time. That, that class changed my life in more ways than you can imagine. The, so we started off talking about the younger Emily Chamley Wright, and we ended the conversation about your career with the, the current. So what's, what's different about the Emily that would have been, uh, you know, the Emily think, you know, getting excited about econ for the first time, getting excited about Austrian economics for the first time, worrying about these questions about social learning and, and, and sort of figuring out maybe fieldwork, something I want to do, and, and maybe culture is something I want to pay attention to. And and this Emily now, both as a, I mean, mostly as a scholar and, a, and as a as a teacher, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that there's, um, there, the theme of fearlessness is, is an interesting theme and arc. Um, I was fearless about some of these choices I was making as a graduate student, mainly because I was too stupid to know better. You know, I fearlessly wrote a book rather than, you know, uh, a, a series of articles that could then be turned into uh, journal publications for my dissertation. You know, I fearlessly did field work and, um, you know, embedded myself in into um, context that took a lot of time and, you know, fearlessly sort of avoided um, – uh, didn't avoid, but fearlessly did this qualitative analysis rather than doing what was I was supposed to do, which was the quantitative stuff, all because I didn't know better. Uh, I didn't know that I couldn't do that. Uh, and and uh, along the way, I you know I, I felt the the challenge that 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 posed. Um, never from the context of working at the liberal arts college. I was always um, embraced. That work was always embraced. It was always recognized as an asset because it was so interdisciplinary. I was always capable of talking to my colleagues beyond the department, and that made me valuable to them. It made me valuable to my colleagues within the department. So in terms of my career within the liberal arts community, it was never anything that that um, felt like a challenge. But, you know, definitely there were times when, um, uh, you know, I needed to elbow my way into a conversation, into, um, you know, so, so the first part of my first book 
is really trying to make a case for you know why this kind of why this kind of economics to um, study economic development and also why this kind of methodological approach when it's not something economists do. So there's a lot of like like laying the ground that you've got to do for yourself and that can feel alienating, it feel, can feel lonely and 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 fear inducing. Um, and where I am now is back a smart back to the graduate version, graduate school version of Emily um, in 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 the sense of being just as fearless uh, but you know, knowingly so uh, that you know it, it actually did work out, and and it has worked out, and and in fact, I I wouldn't have wanted for myself any other career arc. Um, there's no project that I've worked on that I felt like, well, that was just a shameless bid to you know uh, fit in to the discipline. Um, and there's nothing that I did that I'm not proud of, and there's nothing that I've worked on that I didn't have fun doing, and. If you can look back, you know, I think of myself as being mid-career, you know, at the first part of your career and say that, I think that's a, that's a good thing. And so I, I think where I am now is I've, you know, re-embraced that fearlessness uh, that I had as a graduate student, um, a little wiser uh, than I was before, um, but so grateful that um, uh, Don didn't dissuade me from any of those choices. Um, and, and I feel very, very grateful for, uh, his support. Um, and, and I just want to say too, um, you know, there were not many women in the program back then. And, and I think about, um, Dawn's role in supporting people who had interesting ideas. That was the thing he cared about. And, uh, and, and he never batted an eye about being a mentor to a young woman in the program. And in fact, he saw it as an asset. This is great. This is wonderful that the discipline is getting more diverse. And, and I think about the work that, that you're doing with graduate students here. And, and both in terms of being incredibly supportive of young women in the department, um, people of color in the department, you know, all, all those of us who um, are, you know, somewhat the oddballs, right, you're here to support them. I think uh, Pete is very supportive of that diversity as well. And and so in that sense, Don's spirit, in many senses, Don's spirit lives on, but that's an important dimension of of what he brought to the table that I'm so grateful for as an alumna of, of, the, of the program uh, and as a board member of Mercatus uh, that, uh, that I'm just so grateful to see that that aspect of Don's commitment um, really carrying on. Thank you so much, and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.